Cartography Podcast. We're joining you on the eve of new lockdowns announced across the country. Um, in Washington, where I'm located currently, they were just announced today. I think California was announced today as well, and um, Illinois for Chicago, additionally. Um, what's the situation like where you are, L? Yeah, um, they announced a lockdown of sorts, I'm pretty sure, on, on Friday. Again, I say pretty sure because I'm kind of getting this just based on the actual result, like how it's what I'm seeing. So, I mean, I found out about this on Friday when uh, a bunch of um, coworkers that I was supposed to have dinner with on Saturday you know, the person who was hosting it, they kind of sent out the announcement like, hey, guys, you know, because of these new uh, guidelines uh, or mandates, I believe was the word they used, that uh, we're not going to be able to get together on Saturday. So I promptly took the initiative to just invite whoever else was not that person over to my place. Um, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, nobody, only one person showed up. One you, found out, you found out where you really stood. I did find it. No, one person did show up and we had a, we had a lovely, <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, yeah, it's, we're, we're back in this whole, whole thing. Sounds so how, how is that situation? Like, how are you navigating that? Um, like with inter-office politics? Yeah. Uh, I mostly just keep my mouth shut and don't say anything to anybody about it. Um, that, that person who, uh, who did come over for dinner that day, uh, you know, is someone who I have kind of gotten to know a little bit more and I can kind of talk to them uh, a little bit more frankly about some of these things. They're a little bit more like mine. In fact, they, uh, they, you know, raise chickens and, and, uh, and sell eggs and stuff like, so they're, they're kind of into all that, a little bit of that DIY lifestyle, if you will. Um, so it kind of doesn't surprise me that they're, uh, sort of, put off by all of this similar to, to what I am. And, um, yeah, I mean, for the most part, I really just kind of try to ignore it as, as hard as I possibly can. And, uh, it's, you know, it's getting harder and harder to do because nobody else is. <laughs> well, so, so out here, um, in the Seattle area, they just, they announced that all indoor dining is closed. Um, so, so anything, and actually anything indoors, is closed. So you could really only get like takeout uh, or like buy something from a store and leave. Um, but so, so like gyms are closed, but just for a personal story on my end, like I was, I was at the gym last week and it's interesting, like what people are willing to say out loud versus what um, they have to keep internalized, like with, with respect to um, a lot of the coronavirus stuff. Mm -hmm. So like, so I signed up for the gym. You, you walk in the gym, they take your temperature and you have to sign up for a spot, one of eight spots in advance. This is like an enormous gym where there's normally like hundreds of people. So it's like effectively empty when you go there, which is actually kind of nice. But, but anyway, yeah. I'm one of the, one of the eight people there. And then um, this one older woman is working out there with her trainer and she's just openly out loud, like talking about all of this political stuff and the lockdowns and everything. But like, obviously in, in support of the lockdowns, but like, it's just interesting that people feel emboldened to do this like publicly from that perspective, d depending on which state you're in. Like I would say the opposite was probably true when I was in Florida a couple months ago. 
Um, but yeah, it was, it was just pretty jarring to, to just be in the gym and listen to this lady just out loud saying like, oh, like, it's so crazy what Donald Trump is doing. Like just, just going off on like political rant, like just in public. Like, it was it was a weird experience to, to see it. Yeah, I mean, I have to say it, it sounds to me like more of all of this same kind of, you know, virtue signaling for lack of a better term, right? Like everybody just wants to go out of their way to express how on board they are with one political kind of, you know, culture or, or, or another, you know, and, and it's all of this very kind of cheap talk, you know, uh, there's just really very little emphasis on action from a lot of these folks. And um, it's really funny, like from, from our perspective, like when you actually like spend time following or analyzing these events, every single day like we used to do it's so funny to just watch people recite like the same three talking points just over and over and over again like but they think that they're like saying something that the other person doesn't know but like everybody knows these same three talking points you know i I feel like i don't even think they think that anymore (laughs) it's purely just like it's purely just like a tape recording that everybody's like playing amongst uh, each other now a hundred percent i think it's like literally it's the same exact thing as like the videos of the you know the people chanting heil hitler you know and it's just, <laughs> i mean it's just it's literally you're just like oh you can you guys see me yeah i'm one of you guys right right like we all hate this right right you know? i sort of wanted to work out this idea a little bit more but I, I have this basic idea that like i think that people are actually like i don't know if it's like just certain types of people i don't know if it's iq based or or, or, or what the fundamental mechanism is. But I think that there's a good percentage of the population that is actually uh, like hypnotized by this kind of stuff. Like, I really do believe that they're in like a trance state that's like, like whether it's caused by uh, emo- emotional stress or, or whatever the mechanism is, it doesn't matter. But I honestly do believe that there's a percentage of the population that is just thoroughly in a trance state that's just unable to like have thoughts outside of it. I, I think in the, in a certain kind of context, you're absolutely right. Like, you know, for instance, the, the, like the Hitler youth rally, you know what I mean? Like when you're, when you're surrounded by like tons of strength or, or for that matter, you know, the, these uh, some of these protests going on nowadays um, when you're like in that kind of group situation, you know, there is definitely something incredibly mesmerizing about that energy and I think even those of us who are extremely, I mean, I can tell you from my experience, having been in the military, like, you know, despite all of your most valiant attempts at rationalism or, or at like kind of keeping your wits about you, as it were, you, you will get sucked into that kind of stuff. I mean, it's, it's almost kind of just inevitable, but I think that. I, I think in, it goes beyond like the, the, just the mob mentality though. I think it really does go into like, into the individual, uh, like on that level. Do, do you, what do you think about that? I mean, I don't know. I, I, there, there may very well be some people who are more susceptible to others. I mean, they, for instance, hypnosis, right? Like some people are just, are much more easily hypnotized. And I, I feel like I've heard that explained as they're just generally more kind of suggestible, uh, which makes perfect sense. They're just kind of more willing to believe, you know, whatever it is that's going on, less adept at suspending disbelief or being skeptical. But I also think social media plays like a huge part in, in 
kind of uh, bringing these tendencies out in people in whom they, they may not have necessarily existed as much without that, you know, there's this yeah. quality that it has. And I mean, it's been talked to death, you know, everywhere. And, and um, I almost feel sick of talking about it, but it's just like, it's one of the most obvious aspects of all of this. That's just like, you can't not talk about it. I mean, it's just clearly driving so much of this, um, especially this vitriol, you know, whether it's over the stupid masks or whether it's over <laughs> politics in general, it's just brings out the worst in people. It, it's hard for me to even believe that people are still going along with this. Like the, the mask thing is just, <laughs> it boggles my mind that people have just accepted this. Like, I really don't even understand how there hasn't been, I mean, you, you've seen some large resistance movements in Europe that have actually been pretty encouraging. I mean, the, the, the media does suppress it, but like, if you look for it, there's been like 10, at least tens of thousands of people gathering. I saw in Rome, uh, Berlin, there were some in Spain, I believe. So like there, there are a lot of people that are just like done with it, but I mean, it's incredible that it's still going on. I mean, what, what are we like seven months into it at this point? Maybe it's true. A little bit more. It, it totally boggles my mind. I'm hundred percent with you on that. I mean, I think if anything, what would explain why that's happening more in Europe than perhaps it is here is because, you know, maybe like, I mean, I don't know, it's a huge generalization, but I would say European countries in general, like the populations are um, even before all this started, you know, like, they hadn't come quite as far on that path of like, you know, social media culture and just this whole kind of, I, I don't even know how, how you would describe it. Just the, the, the sort of lack of humanity that has emerged in particularly American culture, you know, yeah, you over know the it, last decade or so. I wanted to add here. It's interesting. The, like the company we used to work for, we used to analyze um, social media data across the world and, at that time, social media really wasn't big in Europe at all. It was like a much no. smaller percentage of, of Twitter users and Facebook users located in Europe as opposed to uh, like the United States and North America. But for sure, I mean, you got to think that it's, it's ramping up there at this point. I mean, I, I don't have the user numbers on me, so I don't want to pretend to know. But but you would it would certainly seem as if they're being um, brought into the into the social the media fold. big tech yeah. fold. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet, you know, um, I mean, however much they are, like, I'm glad it's not quite as bad as here because I just feel like, uh, you know, I was saying, I'm just, I'm a hundred percent with you. And I would even take it a step further and say that I'm just like deeply just disappointed. Doesn't even begin to cover it. Like I, I'm kind of heartbroken to be honest with you. I, I have well, for it's, a long it's sad to see your fellow, like fellow humanity, just not, standing up for themselves. Yep. I mean, just not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there is something, even though I feel like if you had approached me before all of this even started and you, you told me this story and you said, this is what, like, I, I feel like I would have predicted like, yeah, they're totally just going to go along with it. Okay. But here, here, let's go, let's go with this. So, it. so if I, if I told you that, if I told you last year that in a year there's going to be a virus with a mortality rate of 0.01%, what, what do you think the, the response would be on a, on a population level? Yeah. I mean, if you had pitched it like that, that there's no way I would have predicted any of that. <laughs> uh, at the same time, 
I, you know, a person of my kind of mindset is like, I mean, I knew, I would say, not, not to make it sound like I accurately predicted what was going to happen, but it doesn't surprise me that there was some big event that they, you know, whether they cooked up the event itself or whether it's just like never waste a good crisis. You know, you know, I have to say I'm becoming more open to the idea that it was that it was intentionally released by the day. I'm not saying that I'm favoring that. Yeah, um, that possibility. But the way that it's shaping out, I'm becoming more open to it for sure. I feel like it doesn't really matter. Do you know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, if they can just like what's the difference between whether they like released this virus that doesn't kill anybody or whether they like, you know, seized upon this story that just kind of popped up and they turned it into this massive thing. Uh, That's an interesting argument because I think like, I think we usually disagree on this point, but I think intentions actually do matter in this stuff because I like, I would use them. I think they're intention. They're, they're important to predict future behavior, but I mean, I'll make my own counter argument to this. Like, obviously we know that, be it the market or, or just powerful elites will capitalize on anything. So, I mean, like pragmatically, I guess it doesn't make too much of a difference, but I still think it, it helps, it helps you to orient yourself. Like if you could discern that difference. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, for me, it's like, I don't even spend too much time trying to discern it anymore. I just take the general perspective that, you know, it's safer to assume that they're up to something in my mind, uh, regardless of the details. I mean, I, because again, not, not only like, I, I hear what you're saying in the sense that it can give you kind of a, a little bit more of a insight into, uh, who you're dealing with and what the situation, what to expect. But the thing is we can already see, like, in other words, the, whatever it is that we may have speculated on before this, like that they, here they are imposing medical martial law. Right. I mean, yeah. So I, I would say like, I'm, I'm more scared and concerned about it now than I was six months ago. Like I'm much, uh, I don't want to say much more. I'm more pessimistic about what we're dealing with than I was six months ago in, in terms of them possibly engineering this or, or planning for it. Like, especially when you see what's come out about like the world economic forum. I don't know if you've seen uh, many of these news stories, but I mean like also they've been pushing this build back better narrative where it's on Joe Joe Biden's um, like campaign stands and materials. Boris Johnson's been saying it. Other European leaders have been saying it. I looked into it a little bit before, before we did this episode actually. And it goes back to um, a 2009 UN event and then it's been used like sporadically in um, like like UN policy and European um, like organizations. But it, it's really just come to a forefront now, like in, in an obvious way where like you've seen some um, like some people on Twitter have put together like a bunch of screenshots of the catchphrase appearing throughout like leaders speeches. And like it's uh-huh. stuff like that, that like it definitively proves that they are working together to do this like that, that that doesn't mean that they necessarily like released the virus and planned all of this but like there's no it, it's not debatable that they are working in concert to roll out an agenda and and they talk about this like justin trudeau was talking about it the other day it's like sustainability climate change 
equality, um, and diversity. And I mean, like they're, they're specifically saying that like, this is the plan of what build back better is going to be like, this is what we're going to do. Do you happen to remember the name of the event in 2009 by any chance? I don't, I don't. That'd be interesting. We ought to look that up and drop a link into the show. But like, I think this, this is something that like normal people who don't follow all of this stuff really don't understand. I mean, I was first introduced to it. Um, like when I, when I was studying economics and when I was in trading, like every year there's the Davos conference and all of the major CEOs, um, and like think tank and NGO people attend this meeting to hear about like what the future is going to be. And I mean, they're essentially just building out models and then narrativizing like what they think or narrating what they think the future is going to look like given current trends and current threats. So like, I don't think it's necessarily as cynical as people think. Well, except it's sorry to interrupt, but I feel like it's just so important. You like, yes, that, that would be what I would call it if it were like you, me and a bunch of other people doing it. But these are the people that own everything. Yeah, but it's just it's just Jamie Diamond and Lloyd Blankfein and George Soros. <laughs> you know, just having a theoretical conversation about what might happen next year with all these companies that they own the majority of stock in. You know, what's the big deal? But like again, from from like an economic perspective, like all of these trends are like well known and established, like within strategists and people who actually look at any of this stuff. Like they have just like internalized the idea that globalization is the future and, and like ultimately that's what drives all of their growth right so like I, I think people at times tend to view this more cynical more cynically than than it actually is but then you see something like this, this build back better narrative and then you realize like okay well <laughs> they're clearly like they're clearly coordinating this to some degree you know I mean, I feel like people even dismiss that, you know, like even things like that don't seem to be enough to convince people. I'm, for what it's worth, you know, everybody laughs at Alex Jones. Like he's been talking about these kinds of conferences for decades now, you know, like um, and, and now it's finally in the last few years, it's becoming kind of more mainstream. Like people used to dismiss, like if you even bring up something like the Bilderberger Group, you know, which is like not even one of the kind of uh, even more influential one of these meetings, I don't think at this point. Um, but that, you know, like, I, I have a funny story about that one. I never even heard of it. Like until, well, I was, let me think. I was like maybe 17 at the time and I was studying in Madrid and I was in some coffee shop mm-hmm. and I was, I, I had like some econ textbook or something. And then some guy came over and he was talking to me and then he started like going on about the, the Bilderberg group. And I had awesome. never heard of it. I had no idea what he was talking about. I thought he was like completely out of his mind. (laughs) And then like a couple of years later, I started like reading about, I didn't even think about it until like years later, I heard it again. I was like, Oh, that's that thing. Like, cause it stuck with me. Cause I was like, Uh so taken aback by what this guy was. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But then, yeah. But then a couple of years later, I started looking into it. It's like, Oh yeah. Like this stuff is like, it goes on. It's, it's well known that it goes on. And like, like it isn't even like a conspiracy theory or anything like this is just what happens. Yeah. I mean, to kind of wrap up this, I, I don't know how much more we really have to say about the whole COVID. You know, I feel like it, at this point, everyone has been living this nightmare for the last, uh, you know, several months going on almost a year now. And well, um, well, what do you think the strategy is with it? I mean, I think they're just... Look, I, I think there was going to be some kind of a massive economic readjustment, uh, regardless of what anybody did. 
Like, even if there was not all of this, you know, planning and agenda making going on to recreate the modern economy along these kind of very centralized, urbanized, globalized lines, which I think there totally is, uh, even if there wasn't that, there would have been a massive collapse of the pre-existing economic system uh, just by virtue of how the currency works, by virtue of the fact that it's it's based on finite resources like fossil fuel and, and you know all sorts of things like that. Uh, it was never going to last forever. And so it doesn't surprise me one bit that they, whether they cooked this thing up or whether they seized upon it as an opportunity to, and, and I actually, I'm kind of almost going in the opposite direction of you, quite frankly. I, I, I more and more kind of beginning to see this as just like, <laughs> mostly because if they were going to release something, they would have released something that actually kills people. Because uh, then that would just be like killing two birds with one stone for them. Um, but, you know, I feel like, it again, it doesn't make that much of a difference to me. This is what they're doing. And they are uh, clearly very deliberately shutting down the pre-existing economy. They are centralizing economic activity in a handful of corporations. I mean, these are all things that everybody knows. They're not controversial. Um, you know, I also think that there is a very direct, overt attempt to, to just dismantle social structures as much as they possibly can. And to me, you, you need look no further than the fact that they're calling this social distancing. I mean, what an absurdly <laughs> Orwellian term. Like, uh, it doesn't even make any sense. You know, you would think if you're pushing the uh, kind of not, you know, infectious disease angle, you would call it something like physical distancing or, or you know, <laughs> I mean, this is America, so they would call it freedom distancing. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just some nonsense like that. But no, no, they came right out and called it social distancing. Like, whatever you do, don't go socializing with other people. So to me, that's the very clear agenda going on here. And it's uh, incredibly heartbreaking how people are, you know, despite how low my opinion was of Americans before this, uh, it's really, I don't even know what to say anymore. All I can say for my part is that I am doing everything in my power to set some kind of a reasonable, you know, not too annoying example of just kind of non-compliance. Uh, with with as much of this as possible and, and really show people to the extent that I'm able uh, that uh, they can't really do this to us unless we let them, you know, for the most part. I mean, yeah, they, they can they can sort of crack down on people here and there and you'll hear stories and, and you know, certain people are definitely going to be made examples of. But the reality is that um, they're, they're just are not enough you know, forget about cops. I mean, hey, hey, whoever it is that they've got enforcing this garbage, uh, they'll never find enough people to do that to actually make people stick to this. It's really up to us whether or not we're going to. And they cannot stop you from getting together with your friends and family at your houses. You know, it's just so I guess if, if I would say anything to everyone, it would just be like, for God's sakes, try, do your best to enjoy your lives, you know, maintain some some shred of humanity. Maybe this is a good segue into the next topic, um, but just to like another another personal story, like just the, the juxtaposition between what life was like in Florida compared to Washington is completely insane. I mean, it's like very 
viscerally depressing, like, at, like, like you're physically distanced from people. There's nobody out here. But then in Florida, it was like, if you're not wearing a mask, people would come up and like pat you on the back or like talk to you. Like just, just the, just the obvious, um, juxtaposition in like in attitude and energy is like incredible. I mean, I, I can't even, I can't overstate the point. Like pe- people were generally like happy to express that they weren't going along with this stuff in Florida. Right. That but is then, amazing. Then in Seattle, it's very much like people are like, you're looking over your shoulder to see if like somebody's watching you, if you don't have a mask on, it's like, everybody looks like they're like, I mean, it's like almost out of an oral book where like people are like spying on each other, like, yeah. <laughs> or like you're in Russia, like that they're communist Russia. That's like literally what it feels like. Totally. It, it's really insane. But um, yeah, to, to tie it back to the next point, um, I think one of the reasons they're doing it, and it's interesting for, I'm not sure what the duration of the lockdown is in Vermont, but I think in, um, in Chicago and, uh, and Washington state, they announced that it's going to be for four weeks. So Same here. Four. It's similar. Yeah. They, they said that they're going to reassess it like towards the middle or end of December. Right. And it's interesting now to, to combine that with what the deadline for the election certification is. It's, it's in mid December, I believe. Uh-huh. So that will be about three, three or four weeks from now. So I think, I think there's a much larger game going on here with, re- with regard to the election. And I think at least in part, this new lockdown is meant to dissuade and prohibit people from organizing in the streets. I mean, you saw just just one more example. You saw in Washington, D.C. this weekend, there was the million mega march. So they had like they tried to get a million people there. It looked like they had at least a couple hundred thousand based on on my view. And they were occupying like the entire like the entire mall downtown. And it was like an insane amount of people and like people weren't wearing masks. And but like just again, the energy there was like so optimistic and positive, like compared to what you see in these urban centers. And it's like almost like they're reenacting these lockdowns to prevent something like that occurring in other places around the country. And I mean, this is also part of the reason they didn't even cover it in like mainstream media, barely at all. And like, so it, but it was so compelling though, that like, if you saw this footage and just like the, outpouring of love i mean whether you like the guy or not it's kind of irrelevant like just aesthetically what you saw was like it was like a love fest but like this this is obviously right yeah exactly and this is obviously and yeah this is obviously the opposite of the narrative that the media wants to show but like it, it really got me thinking like they really are doing these lockdowns to prohibit this and then even with that even you saw once it was announced um, like a couple days before it was supposed to take place, I think it was the mayor. I forget if it was the mayor or the governor, or whoever's in charge in DC, was saying that like people are going to be required to quarantine for 14 days when they get to DC. But like they just like didn't listen to any of this shit, and they they nice. just did the march anyway. But like, but I think this furthers your point. Where like ultimately, like if you have enough people, like they're they're just not going to be able to stop. You. Yeah, they they just can't. Um, and. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I definitely tend to focus a lot less on these partisan angles. However, I, you know, I think in this case, there's definitely something to be said for the way that um, the way that this kind of Trump phenomenon, I'll call it, has seized upon this kind of 
like, again, say what you will about the guy himself, but I think that in the minds of the vast majority of people who seem to be supporting him, you know, it's, it's what this all represents to them that is, I think, uh, making a lot of the, the kind of more traditional, you know, establishment structures nervous. And uh, it's, it's really interesting because I, I don't know enough about it to really say whether I believe that there, that this length of time for the lockdown is specifically correlating to like, you know, like in other words, if they're specifically aiming at stopping people from like having pro-Trump rallies, or maybe they are, I don't know. But it's really fascinating to think about how this whole narrative is being, I mean, like I'll give you an example. I was listening just briefly. I happened to, um, and normally I switch the radio station whenever NPR comes on. But today I decided to listen to it for a few seconds, you know, just because of all this going on. And I was kind of curious what they were talking about. And they had this, this lady, I didn't listen for long enough to hear who she was, but I'm sure she was some, you know, epidemiologist or some authority on something or, you know, claim or some contributor, whatever she was. Someone you're supposed to listen to. Someone you're supposed to listen to. Mommy, mommy was talking. (laughs) And, and so, um, what mommy said was that, you know, she was talking about all of this, like, okay, you know, like we had this kind of summer break and uh, a lot of us have kind of gotten lax about a lot of these practices, like washing our hands and wearing the masks and all these things. <laughs> she was she was like, that's the tone that she was kind of using. And it's like, yeah, you know, we're, we're kind of getting back into the game now. And, you know, this is, uh, and then she says, like, you know, in, in a couple of weeks, when the inauguration happens, there are going to be serious professional experts that are going to be immediately put to work. Um, and and the clear kind of point that she was driving at is that, you know, and, and I'm sure that this is a narrative that you've heard a million times, right? To me, again, because I say so tuned out of this, it's like, this is new to me, this narrative that basically the Trump administration wasn't doing enough about all of this, which I, which I frankly find hilarious. I mean, again, whatever you will say about Trump, I mean, it needs to be recognized that he is, in fact, the presidential administration that gave us this whole lockdown. I mean, again, not to say that that, but it's just, you know, if you just look at it in those very kind of crude terms, the way that people normally do, oh, this is what happened under this president, you know, well, the Trump presidency is what gave us the the COVID lockdowns. You know? Right. Well, he's criticized for not going far enough. And that's <laughs> and that's what this lady was saying. And it was like to such a clear. So all of that kind of to get around to the point that there's such a clear narrative that the mainstream media is pushing that like you know now it's time to really get serious. You know and like. They're ushering in this kind of new government, and it's all being kind of focused on this this much more assertive, you know, push towards all of these what I would call very draconian measures. You know, well, it's like at the point where it's so mask off and in your face that it's like, okay, Trump slowed us down for four years. Now we got to get serious. We got to get back to what we were doing before, and we're going to ramp it up now. And, and it's just obvious that this is what they're doing. And it's it's just fascinating to see the population, like the, the parts of the population that aren't cynically minded behaving as if they were. Like like this lady, for example, like 
I'm sure she doesn't mean like to say that, oh, after the election, then, then it'll be better, you know, or like, I'm sure she doesn't mean it that way, but like, this is the most cynical take, you know? Yeah. I mean, from someone who, again, I, I kind of like, I, I call this all kind of very selective cynicism, you know, because to me, like, if you can't see past this two party paradigm that is being so focused on, I don't see how you can go. Not, not that, you know, cynicism is necessarily some universally positive thing, but I feel like in today's environment, you know, with, with media, the way that it is and and just consumer culture, the way that it is, like if you're, if you don't have the capacity to be cynical about these things, then you're probably missing a lot, you know, and, and probably doing a whole lot of things that are not in your, in your best interest, you know, case in point. Yeah. I, mean, I, I still have discussions with one of my friends uh, from my hometown. We talk about this stuff. He's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's pretty liberal about everything. And he's just like, not cynical enough to, to, to get what's going on. So like every example that I ever bring up to him, he'll use like one of the, um, he'll use the institution itself that I'm saying is, corrupt or compromised um, to like as a source to disprove the point that I'm trying to make. So, so like, it's always like a check against um, like a sin, like the, the realist or the cynical reading of the event. Do you see what I'm saying? So like, yeah, totally. New York Times. Yeah. Yeah. Like if, if you're not willing to, to engage with the idea that maybe this is compromised or maybe this is corrupt, then there's really no way to advance the conversation from that point. Like it's just not logically possible to prove uh, like quote unquote, a conspiracy or corruption. If you're implicitly not willing to grant that that's possible and you're going to use authoritative sources that are specifically in question. Well, it's even one of the like enumerated logical fallacies. I forget what the Latin, you know, term. Well, yeah, I think it, I think it would be a circular appeal, argument. Appeal to authority, you know. It's, right, it's yeah, basically. It's, I mean, there's you know, there's, it's, it's all of the logical fallacies. <laughs> really, those that whole logical fallacy thing is kind of it, it's occurred to me in the it's in and of itself a little bit of a logical fallacy because yeah, well, that's the, that's the fallacy fallacy. <laughs> it really is. It really yeah, is. It's so funny. Uh, but it works, you know, it works on people because they go, oh, there's a name for it, so that must be, you know. Um, but no, it's it's totally true. I mean, there's a, I think a lot of it just comes down to the, at, at its core, there is just a fundamental disconnect between individuals in, in this modern society and the society itself. In other words, there's so, so few things are as they seem. And it really does, like in a society that is so highly specialized, where everyone has their one job and you, you know, you have to dedicate so much of yourself in order to just make a decent living at this point in time, you know, to expect, I think, most people to do the kind of critical thinking and research and analysis that it takes to understand how these things work. I mean, you could, you know, in theory, you could kind of if you wanted to kind of uh, even not change a person's thinking like your friend, but even just kind of present an alternative to them or, or, or kind of 
open their mind a little bit, you might ask, well, what is the New York Times? You know, like, can you, can you explain what that is? Or like when people talk about science, like it's religion, you know, oh, science says vaccines work. Well, what exactly do you mean when you use the word science? Do you, like, did, who are you talking about? What are you talking about? And I've tried that with some people. And at the very least, like, it's a good way to shut them the fuck up, you know, if they're just like not really contributing thoughtfully to a conversation. But, some, but you know, more often than not, like they just kind of shut down. You know, well, yeah, just, I, I think this goes to go back right. to the hypnotism point that I was trying to make. Like, I specifically remember, like, when we, like, when I first started um, having to analyze, like, the geopolitical affairs, which was, like, out of my um, depth at the time, like, when you or other people would engage with me this way, like, I, <laughs> maybe you could, maybe you could correct me now, but I felt like I would at least try to, like, honestly engage with, with the question. You know what I mean? But, like, I think there's a percentage of people that, are just not able to actually do that. Like it's like the only reason you and I still talk. A chair and try and force them, but they're not going to do it. Like no. for, for some reason, it's just not like clicking in the mind. I've thought about this way too much. I mean, I because I especially like at that place you and I used to work at. You know, for whatever it's worth, you were one. I mean, you were literally the only individual at that whole place that I could ever even kind of like have a conversation that even sounded like this, you know, uh, most of those people were just, I mean, I, I don't even well, here, know let, how to, let, let me tie this back. Actually, this yeah. is interesting. Cause I remember telling you at the time that you would be surprised how many people, um, I was on the, like, I, I started off at the finance team where we would analyze yeah. uh, like, uh, actionable events for, for day trading, um, and, and investing. So, but I was, I was trying, I was telling you that you would be surprised how many people would agree mostly like, like would be mm -hmm. more open to what you're talking about yeah. on the finance team compared to the other teams, because like, and, and this ties back to the, uh, like to the Davos and world economic forum and all uh -huh. of this, like, because these people are familiar, like with the trends and the, and the intention of the global market. Right. And they understand the kind of nuts and bolts of the system as it actually functions like in a, on a much, I think more detailed level because I was coming from the kind of government sector. And then you and I both kind of worked in the more like media focused news sector, which that's its whole other, I mean, those people were truly of, of all of the, I mean, I, I don't want to talk about Their case is terminal. Their it's... case is terminal. That those are just the ideologues of all ideologues. Like at least the people in the kind of government world are a little bit more kind of jaded just because they, they see things on a much kind of darker level in a lot of cases, but they're still super idealistic, you know, and they still throw around a lot of these big words. And, um, you know, it's funny because like they're in, in the finance world and the trading world, it's probably, I mean, it's definitely the majority of people aren't idealistic. So like, it's, yeah. it's funny the way you see like, uh, econo like economists and the fed portrayed in public, like, that's a, a really small minority of like thought and ideology within finance and economics. I mean, we would like overwhelmingly be like laughing during the Fed meeting. Uh -huh. Like the justifications <laughs> they would give are so blatantly ridiculous that like we would all be laughing about. It. Like everybody, I mean, maybe not everybody, but I would say eight out of 10 people understood 
that the entire goal is to just make the stock market go higher. Like that, that's what we're trying to do here. <laughs> like it's not about like interest rates. Like no, nobody gives a shit. Like we're just going to say whatever we have to say to make the stock market go higher. But like, again, the, the majority of people knew this. Did they, did, would you also say that the majority of people under, like, I know you understand this, but like the, the degree to which there is, if not an inverse relationship, I mean, in other words, the whole dynamic where like the stock market doesn't really mean shit for most people, you know, that, that like, uh, the, the disconnect between that and the real economy and just like, in other words, would you say there was like a, uh, oh, yeah, understanding across absolutely. the board in that community? That's, that's yeah, completely, so I mean, because this is like, I mean, these are people who have studied either economics or finance, like in college, working in the real world. So like they're around this stuff all the time. And like, these are smart people. So, I mean, they, they can get what's going on. I, <laughs> I feel like I, I mean, yeah, I guess the, the sort of population that I'm thinking of that talks about the stock market in general doesn't really tend to be the, the, the finance oriented people, you know, but it just the, the amount of people who don't understand that, you know, like who talk about the stock market, like it's like a thing that you're supposed to care about, you know, oh, well, the stock market, you know, I mean, again, I'm not trying to say that it's completely meaningless and you could talk about all this much more intelligently than I could, but I, I, it's just amazing to me that a person has to be deeply educated in economics and finance in order to, and I mean, they don't have to be, but it's just amazing, like, that it's so uh, focused in that community. You would think more people would have at least a cursory understanding of the system that they operate in every single day of their lives. Well, the problem is that they're presented it through like the news media and these people don't like know anything. Like if yeah. you see, I mean, like th there's people who do like Maria Bartiromo, who used to be a reporter on CNBC is actually quite good. Um, and she's on like one of the major news networks now. And CNBC is pretty good. Like if you watch that all the time, I mean, you could figure out what's going on. And there are even um, hedge fund managers and people who will go on and, and basically just say this stuff. I mean, like they're like, <laughs> I mean, th there's some level to like decoding the language, but like, yeah. Not, not as much as you would think. And most people, and like I said, most people are just aware of it. Like, yeah. I mean, I mean, it just another good example. Like if you just go on to like finance or trading Twitter, I mean, like it's mostly just like Wolf of Wall Street memes and stuff. <laughs> like, so like, it's just full, yeah. like that culture is just like fully internalized. Within yeah. It. You know, it's so funny that you put it that way uh, because now that you mention it, 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 there really is kind of a lot of that and, and, in the sort of international relations culture that I'm a little bit more coming from where like you have uh, this, this norm, you know, of all of these officials, um, whether they be like, you know, big time uh, uh, diplomats or ambassadors or people like, uh, you know, Zbigniew Brzezinski or, or uh, Henry Kissinger, you know, these incredibly influential think tank, types and presidential advisors, people like that. I, I saw today, I saw today that Kissinger said that we immediately need to restore relations with China. Yeah, I bet he did. Yeah. I mean, you, but the, the point is they'll go on the, you know, they'll go on C-SPAN and they'll talk very matter of factly about how like, uh, you know, yeah, they're all just kind of colluding, you know, it, it basically that all of these kind of nationalist things are, are really not what it's all about and that there's essentially all these kind of gentlemen's agreements. They just put it in all of this very kind of sober, you know, matter of fact type of talk. And 
all they're really doing is just going on TV and admitting that they're all engaged in conspiracy and you know but but then you like you frame it the way that most normal people would prove it right you know he just said it (laughs) um it's it's pretty hilarious it was another interesting geopolitical event that i saw this week was i think it was uh vox released an article saying that they were calling brazil a climate outlaw and that it might be the first target of Biden's administration. So like, I, I wrote about this a little bit, but it's just interesting to think about this. Like the, a normal person who's like not like engaged in this world, like really just doesn't have the, like the mental framework to even interpret that, you know? But like fundamentally what that article is though, it's a threat to Brazil and to Bolsonaro, the president mm-hmm. who's, who's strong nationalist yeah and and he also hasn't um congratulated biden on the win yet so they're they're coming after these people who haven't Uh who haven't yet congratulated him but like this is how they do it like people don't understand that like the media and articles and tv coverage like they use these things as weapons to threaten foreign leaders and like direct policy like it's it's a naked threat to bolsonaro essentially like the fact that i mean the fact that they're not mentioning china or india is absurd and, and it's just it's just annoying to even like have to like i don't even like doing these discussions anymore where it's like look at this contradiction yeah, like yeah nobody like we're, we're just way past that yeah, <laughs> at this point yeah. you know but like there's, there's there's really no other way to interpret it like other than a direct threat totally um, and you know, it's interesting. It brings to mind the, uh, conversation we were having once with your friend, Mark, where he sort of said something to the effect of, um, uh, you know, you don't see Google dropping bombs, do you, you know, that sort of thing. And what I didn't say at the time, what I feel like would have been a better response now is, well, they don't really have to because they have a government who does it for them. You know, and, and I guess my whole kind of point that I was trying to make in that conversation, what I think relates very well to this now, is, yeah, I mean, you have these separate sort of spheres or industries. Yes, you have kind of government and you have kind of media and you have kind of military. But, you know, if you just kind of zoom out and look at what's happening, uh, what you see is that they're all working in concert. And whether that is by explicit design, I mean, again, I know we, we disagree slightly on the value of intent, but, you know, my, I, I guess to me, it's just, it's always more relevant to focus on the result of these things. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting, like, just to like, get back to the, to the contradiction between the naive person, the cynical person, it's like, when you see like just, just one article like that, and if you could actually like articulate that point to somebody who will listen to you, like, it's like, what do you think exactly the media is or like what do you think exactly the stock market is like people just like don't actually and this is what you said before but like people don't actually stop to think about what any of this actually is like they just grow up and have internalized like oh it's the stock market oh it's the media they're just telling us the news i completely blame school for this i i really do i i think that there is a fundamental thing where like the the psychology of the classroom and that whole social structure that is created is 
really all that's needed. I think people underestimate just how powerful experiences are when we have them in childhood and, and the, the kind of effect that they have on the rest of our lives. And I mean, the, the point is that they, they really instill in the vast majority of people this, this fear of asking questions, this fear of critical thinking, you know, that's not your job. You speak when called upon, you answer the questions that are on the test. You know, if you don't get the good grade, then you are judged. I mean, that's a big part of it is like people who don't do well in school as children, uh, you know, they have extremely low opinions of their own intellect and they just, they don't feel comfortable even thinking about these things, let alone talking about them. It's just not part of their culture. Yeah, I think another big problem with it is, is that people think um, like in huge generalizations, like well, like even in this conversation, like, but you, you sort of have to do this to some degree to like to have a conversation without just talking about epistemology the entire time. But like, yeah, for some like, for example, if I just said like, if I refer to China, well, it's like, OK, now, like, what what exactly do you mean by that? Like, which is there a group in China or mm-hmm. like like which which billionaires are you talking about? Like, are you talking about the population? Like, but you could do this to, to, to essentially every, every term, you know? But I think like m- more than anything, this just shows that most people just have no idea what they're talking about. Like the vast majority of the time. So like, I mean, even within China, like it, it would just be completely naive to say that like, Oh, China supports this or they support that. Yeah. And then, and then this is what, um, the naive people latch on to this to say like, oh, well, here's one example of an event that didn't conform to your theory. So, so your theory must be wrong. Right. It's like, well, no, that, that like there's, there's, it's much more complex and there's more individual players at play than can be described by the word China, you know? Well, yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up the kind of whole epistemology angle and the, the, the idea that you can really, sort of deconstruct something to death as well. Because I think it's really important to address that, like in terms of developing an overall perspective. Because really, it's like what you're saying, you know, they'll seize upon some kind of thing, like, oh, well, this is an example of that not happening. As if, like, what someone is trying to suggest is that they have developed a perfect theory that explains everything that will ever happen. When in fact, I mean, anyone who is intelligent enough to have some capacity for critical thinking understands that that's pretty much impossible to do. And, you know, I mean, for my part, at least, all I'm ever trying to kind of talk about is a perspective. And so getting back to the epistemology angle, like, you know, a lot of folks would say, uh, when I start, for instance, like really being very critical of uh, the the political process in the United States or any of these kinds of uh, high-flung terminology that gets thrown around, you know, Um, I mean, you name it, you know, whether it's media, whether it's politics, whether it's the idea of patriotism or war, any of these things, a lot of, a lot of big words that people throw around without asking what they mean. And, you know, I, I feel like I get accused whether implicitly or explicitly of like radical empiricism, you know, or being overly materialistic. And I, I, I want to say that, like, I do not dismiss that critique. There is such a thing as overly empiricist, you know, radical empiricist. I think one of the 
the perfect examples that you hear in favor of that argument is, well, people will say, well, you know, uh, are you going to question the existence of the pyramids just because you haven't actually seen and touched them? You know, you technically don't know for sure that they're there, but you can be pretty certain, right? Well, yes, but there's a big difference between that and something that, you know, some story that I'm hearing via corporate media. You know, my Uncle Bob, who goes to Egypt on his vacation and brings back pictures of the pyramids, you know, I can't really think of any good reason that he would have to stage that and give me a false impression of reality. Whereas I can not only think of a lot of good reasons, but present endless precedents and examples of corporate media outlets, not just doing that, but that's pretty much all they do. I mean, that's essentially the, the purpose of their existence is to put out irrelevant, misleading information, you know? And so it's like when somebody accuses me of being radically empiricist because I want to ask what the New York Times is and I won't just take that as an authority, I mean, again, I don't know. I don't even know what to say. It's like you say, you know, at a certain point, you just kind of have to throw your hands up in the air and say, look, you're not trying to have this conversation. So I think that's specifically what makes economics and globalization such a strong argument is because uh, it it identifies the incentives within the system. So like if, if you're if you could at least like if you're using the incentives to to create the narrative. You're, you're just fundamentally going to be able to explain more of the story. And, and of course, there's going to be things that go against that. But I think what that is mostly is then a failure to account for um, one of the smaller players yeah. that might be working some angle against that narrative or right. trying to trying to exert like their power um, to like, like trying to grow their influence within the incentive structure or something like there's, there's all like just from a game theoretical perspective, like there's all sorts of reasons why you would go against your own interests in the short term to further them in the long term. So like it, it would be surprising if every single event was explained by the, by a narrative that you had. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think it's, um, you know, I, I wish that there were a little bit more of that um, of that critical approach to just all the stuff that we're seeing right now, especially as it relates to the just clearly divisive rhetoric, you know, coming what seems like from all sides uh, of the political spectrum. I mean, I just uh, I've talked about this briefly on here before, but if, if there's anything about this that really just kind of makes me very nervous. It's, it's just the, the, the historical parallels, you know, between what's happening in the United States right now and what has happened in other countries and both, you know, recent and ancient history. I mean, it's just endless examples of, of how this kind of vitriol and this demonization of everyone on the opposite side of the political spectrum leads to just the most horrific kinds of violence that people can possibly imagine. And I don't think that any of the relatively nice people, like regardless of what their political views are, regardless of, you know, um, uh, how they're behaving right now or how they're feeling right now, 
regardless of how understandable their perspectives are, I don't think any of them realize that like this kind of talk leads almost inevitably to mass murder. And like, I don't think most of the folks talking like this see themselves as murderers, but that's what happens. Like they end up either murdering people or getting murdered. Well, you should have seen some of the footage from the the MAGA march this weekend. I mean, this was beyond anything that we've ever seen domestically, not not internationally, I would say, like from some of the stuff that we've covered. But I mean, so as as um, like as the rally was ending and night was approaching, um, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen any of the John Carpenter movies or not, but oh, it's I'm like, a huge John Carpenter. It's hard. It's, uh, to, to bring up the analogy again, like it's it's just so hard to explain, like just the the distinction between like the Trump supporters and the and the opposition, whether they were Antifa or BLM. Like I think these things are almost these names are almost meaningless to be honest. I mean, it's people there who hate the people that are the, the other people that are there. <laughs> That's fundamentally what it is. But so like as as the um, gathering was winding down. You, you would see these videos of people getting like attacked by the mob. Right. But like just to see how they would do it was fascinating. So like what they would do is like intentionally um, knock off like one or two stragglers from the, like from the MAGA people. Right. And then they would like swarm around them. And then almost always it would be um, like some young woman going up and making the first, uh, like the first strike. And then the, the MAGA person would like, kind of like push back or whatever. And then it would just be on from there. But like, just, just to see like the mob strategy of like what it's like, almost it's like predatory animals. Like when they would like knock off the, the gazelles, like from the, from the herd, you know, like that's literally what it was like, but yeah, really, really crazy to see this stuff. And I mean, this was in downtown Washington, DC, you know, like, there were, there were, and then by the end of the night, there was, uh, like the, the proud boys group, <laughs> you'll appreciate this story. There was a proud boys group and they were going around and it was just like, I, I mean, they, they looked like a bunch of like six, five white boys from like West Virginia, basically, you know, just yeah. Yeah. going around and like giving it back the other way, you know? Sure. And then <laughs> ultimately it ended with them going to the hotel that they heard that Alex Jones was staying at. And then his co-host came out and gave like a a rousing speech at the end of the night. (laughs) But like, this is like the point that we're at now. Like it's really, it's really something to see. And see, I mean, I want to say like, I know that, you know, you and probably a lot of our listeners are, uh, you know, somewhat sympathetic to the, the whole Trump movement. And I think especially right now, uh, with emotions running pretty high about the whole thing. I, I don't want to make it sound like, I, you know, without like getting into any feelings or sympathies about either of these political sides. And I hear what you're saying. Well, well my intention was to show you that like, we're at a point where it is like getting physically dangerous now. Like, but that's the thing is it's like, it's like the intentions, like even if all the Trump people were like super positive and all they were focusing on was like the love and and all this kind of thing. My hat goes off to that. I think that's beautiful. And it's still going to end in murder. You know what I mean? Like, because these things, when they get to a large enough scale, 
they take on a momentum of their own. There's like this group psychosis that takes over. And I feel like that's, you know, maybe I'm not really sure that we're disagreeing at all on this. It sounds like that's basically what you're describing. But I also think it's important to understand the extent to which, again, regardless of what the ideology even is, that the way these things end is they get taken over, you know, by people who it's the classic bootlegger and the Baptist paradigm that I had explained on an earlier episode of this uh, a while ago, which is where you always have this not explicit, but de facto alliance between these, you know, kind of well-meaning moralistic types that are true believers and really want this kind of ideological vision to be realized and the cold, calculating, cynical, influential people who are perfectly happy to let the moralists speak on their behalf as long as they get to manipulate them, which they do, because those people, often it's the most idealistic, I think, you know, positive type of folks who are the easiest to manipulate in these things, because to them, you know, everything is either a step in the right direction or a step in the wrong direction. And they don't always necessarily calculate for effect and they don't always necessarily think in second order effects because they're excited. And oftentimes there's desperation that sets in. And uh, I guess one of the reasons that I really wanted to kind of do this talk with you right now around this time when, when emotions are running so high, you know, even for the, for our tiny audience is to just, try and somehow, you know, stage some desperate attempt at calming folks down as much as possible. I mean, not that you guys have to listen to me, but man, I really hope that people are thinking in terms of, you know, their safety and that of their loved ones and just being careful and respectful and all that good stuff. Well, I don't think there's really any going back from the point that we're at right now. So (laughs) <laughs> I wanted to talk about the election a little bit. So yeah. what happened, I, I stayed up and watched the whole thing all night. So th- this is what happened, like just objectively speaking, like take, taking off my Trump hat here, sure. speaking objectively. Um, <laughs> what happened was Trump was dominating all of the swing states as the, the early and mid-cycle votes came in. Mm-hmm. And then the swing state, the city centers in the swing states, specifically um Philadelphia, Detroit, um, Atlanta, and a couple, couple others, M- Milwaukee, um, they, they stopped reporting their numbers, just stopped completely for, for various reasons in, in different, um, well, for various stated reasons in, in the different places, while the rural votes were allowed to come in. And this was something done um, in, and I think it was uh, Bronze Age, pervert who pointed this out this was a strategy that was used in 2016 in florida and what they did essentially was broward county stopped counting their results and waited until the rest of florida came in and the theory is to see what the deficit would be that they would have to make up in 2016 though apparently it was just too high and they just like didn't go through with any of this but the governor ended up firing everybody in the um, electoral commission in Broward County and replacing it. And then the argument is that that's why we didn't have this issue in Florida this time. So there, there was no withholding of the ballots in Broward County. But all of the ballots in the major 
Democrat-controlled cities in the swing states were withheld for multiple hours in the middle of the night until the rest of the state recorded. Eventually, they got what they claimed were these mail-in ballots, and there's a bunch of signed affidavits from people in all of these places alleging various um, irregularities. I mean, we, we don't know like whether this whether these are reliable or not, but mm-hmm. most of them are saying that vans essentially came up and dropped off hundreds of thousands of votes in these places. There's reports of Republican poll watchers being kicked out of the polling locations and not allowed to observe the counting. And then a lot of these votes were Biden only votes, meaning that they only voted for Joe Biden and not down the, down the, uh, down ballot. Right. So (laughs) then you, then you have to think about in the swing states and, and this only happened in the swing states, all of the other states were fine. So then also in a place like Pennsylvania, people were getting mailed like like mail-in ballots like eight times. So like you have to wonder what, like so now we know people are getting eight ballots. So what happened to all of these ballots? Why did they do this? And what exactly were those ballots that they counted in the middle of the night that ultimately swung the election to Joe Biden? I mean my personal theory is that maybe some of these might be <laughs> might be fraudulent or or um, irregular to, to to some degree, but like just with the circumstantial evidence that we have, this absolutely needs to be looked into. I mean, like you cannot allow them to to do something like this. I mean, if it turns out that they're all verified and 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 everything was done properly, then okay, maybe this was just. Um, some complication due to COVID, like the mailing system during COVID or something. But like, just with the circumstantial evidence that we have, I don't see how you could allow this to happen. I mean, at like, and why I said this was, there's no going back from this. I mean, people aren't going to accept this. I mean, like, that's a lot of what they were saying at the, at the MAGA march. I mean, these are people who are just saying that this is an unacceptable situation. I mean, like, They've fundamentally destroyed the democracy if they don't verify these votes. And I mean, even states like Pennsylvania went through, like they they went through the courts to to not allow um, like signature verification and and all types of verification that would act like so 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 the cynical part of your brain has to ask why exactly don't you want signature verification on ballots? Why exactly? is somebody getting eight ballots mailed to their house? Like, and then like, I would explain this to, to some of my more liberal friends. They would be like, oh, like you have to show evidence before we could investigate it. And it's like, well, we have hundreds of sworn affidavits of people saying they saw irregularities. So like, shouldn't that be looked into? And they would say, oh, well, that's not, that's not enough evidence. So, so you combine the affidavits with the circumstantial evidence and all of these um, cynical policies passed ahead of the election to thwart verification. I mean, to me, you absolutely have to look at these ballots. I mean, by any means necessary, you have to do it. Like people just aren't going to accept this if, if you don't do that. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, um, 
you know, obviously, as, as I think anyone who listens to this knows, I stay completely tuned out of, of all these goings on. I, everything that you just said was pretty much completely news to me. I mean, I, I had heard, obviously, that the election was uh, in some dispute and that uh, the results are not being universally recognized. Um, you know, I so again, I, I don't want to get into any of that because I just don't know. Like, if if you're of the opinion that there was look here, some... here, think of it. Maybe maybe you should come at it from this angle. Like, and this this is what I try to tie it back to. Like, I'm saying that there, there's no coming back from this in the point that half of the population doesn't they don't believe that this was a legitimate election. So like, just maybe talk about what what you think that would look like, right? Um, going going forward from here. Yeah, and it, it, honestly. I don't think it's going to come to anything. That's my honest opinion. When, when you say that they won't accept it, I feel like I would have said that about the COVID lockdowns and they'll accept that. And Okay, here, let, let me add this little bit of context. So um, Fox News up until late last week was supporting the president. And then they um, sent out memos to... Um, muzzle their like most boisterous talk show hosts, the, mm-hmm. the populist hosts like mm-hmm. Tucker and Sean Hannity. Mm-hmm. And then their um, ratings absolutely plummeted like to the worst levels they've had in decades. So, uh, and a huge percentage of that audience has now shifted to um, like Newsmax and, and other alternative media. And then you have Trump now tweeting out to follow the, these alternative media accounts. And now he's gone like essentially fully against um, Fox news. So like it, it, it really is becoming like a, a larger dynamic, I think than than most people would have anticipated. So like if now we've got a, a, a large percentage of the Republican base paying attention to alternative media, I mean, th- this is like, it's a real step towards like actual populism. Yeah, I mean, I would caveat that with all of that is taking place within the highly controlled construct of federal electoral politics, within which, you know, everything I know about that tells me that, you know, frankly, I mean, look, if what you're saying is that they rigged an election, I mean, that doesn't surprise me at all. I assume that they've been rigging elections forever. And and frankly, like I, that that's the part of this that sort of, um, See, I, I believe that until 2016, 2016 restored my faith in the integrity of the democracy. Well, I mean, couldn't they have just, tried... it, was, it was a short, it was short lived, but well, couldn't, couldn't they have like tried to rig that one and just not done enough? I mean, I feel like, uh, I even heard, well, I think, I think that's that. what I'm saying with yeah. the, with the Broward County example. Right. And, and so, I mean, um, you know, I think ultimately what you're talking about here, and you and I have gone back and forth about this a little bit in the past, but I just really see the levers of power in the this country and the world at large as being much more dynamic and complex than really anything that takes place in the in the White House, certainly. And and so to me, I mean, frankly, I just really couldn't care less who the president is. I just don't think that it's a significant thing to worry about. 
However, right, but that's that that's you personally though. Yeah. So I mean, like what I'm what I'm saying is different about it this time is that now we have a large percentage of the population that <laughs> that is having similar thoughts that we've had in the past. So like, but, in terms of this being like a larger movement, like it it's worrisome. Yeah, from that perspective, and and I guess and and I I'm encouraged by that on its face. Like I think that's positive that people are kind of turning away from the mainstream narratives. But again, just like has happened so many times in recent history, you know, uh, these kinds of fringe movements are very easily co-opted by the mainstream. You know, the, uh, the, a lot of people, I don't think realize that the inaugural act of the Boston tea party, or I guess the were they ever called the actual Boston Tea Party or was it just the Tea Party? I think it was the Tea Party movement. Whatever they were actually, the, the point is the first thing they did to like launch their existence was throw a copy of the 9-11 commission into the Boston Harbor. <laughs> the 9-11 commission report, you know, that, that they basically, and like almost nobody knows that. Uh, it didn't take long, never... right? It didn't take long at all before they were co-opted as just as the kind of conservative wing of the Republican Party, you know. And of course, that the same thing kind of famously in the in the 60s and 70s, they did a pretty good job of co-opting the, the counterculture movement and the kind of left wing protests into the, just basically the Democratic Party. And, you know, uh, so I, I guess like I, I'm encouraged that there is kind of uh, a shift in mood. But quite frankly, I just I don't know, man, I have a hard time being impressed with that kind of stuff. I, I, I tend to again, maybe it's too cynical, but I think that, um, and I'm basing these things off of just history. You know, I'm, I'm a history guy. I, I focus on that stuff as my primary source of evidence for how I see these types of systems. And to me, um, none of this, none of these movements ever get where they're trying to go. They just don't because they're focusing on, I mean, I hate to say it because here I am on the one hand talking about like, you know, nonviolence and, and, but See, I don't think that you have to get violent in order to work outside of the system. And I think I, I really think that the, the kind of stuff that we've talked about here in depth, you know, this very kind of self-sufficiency focused mentality, uh, it, you know, coupled with a kind of actual community economics and really grassroots kind of thing is, is what I wish would be more kind of widely discussed. Obviously, I don't expect the mainstream media to promote those kinds of stories of, you know, people getting together as communities and, and starting community gardens, for instance, you know. But um, I really think that that is, if people really want to topple the power structure, so to speak, or to, to kind of engage in some sort of meaningful change, uh, they really have to start at first the individual and, and then I think that the local level. So well, I think one positive outcome from this um, is that it's like, I think you're right in that a lot of these people will be brought back into the fold to, to some degree. But I think this is the biggest event I've seen in my lifetime, at least, that will distance people permanently from, quote unquote, the system. You know, like, I think this is the event that people are just going to not accept and they're going to use this to to pivot their life into, into a different path that they, that they, even if they're just getting away from something, I think it's going to be, um, I think it's optimistic that there's 
or I think it's a positive sign that there's more people who are going to walk away from from that kind of centralized control. Because I think it's just been so obvious over the last four years and ultimately culminating in this. I mean, the silver lining to 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 Joe Biden stealing the election, if, if that's what happened, would be that it's going to permanently disengage some percentage of these people. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that look, I, I truly hope you're right. I really do. And, and I will say to your, you know, in support of kind of your perspective, um, the fact that like you were talking about how in Florida, you know, everybody was sort of I mean, I think of Florida as being perhaps a little bit more generally conservative, uh, you know, down south in general. Right. Like I hear that, you know, in Texas and stuff like they're they're being much more kind of laid back about all of this covid stuff. And um, I mean, that in and of itself, like as much as I cannot stand the way that this is all being politicized, I mean, (laughs) well, it's forcing a localism in some way it's at least forcing a regionalism in some yeah. degree, which is, which is a, I, which is, I think a positive I mean, di- look, direction. Anywhere where people are like, for whatever the reason I get, like if people are at, at some kind of a local cultural level saying, fuck these masks, you know, like, and, and like congregating together and doing all these normal things. I mean, I feel like regardless of the political slam, like I've got to, be sympathetic to that, you know, because that, that what I'm experiencing here, again, man, it's like, I would use the word heartbreaking. Like I, I came out here, you know, I thought like I'm moving out to the Hills, man, like this, is going to be, and, and somehow, I mean, I, it really makes me wish I would have moved to New Hampshire because the, the, at the state level, Vermont is crazy. Like I cannot believe the kinds of restrictions that they have exp- uh, uh, imposed here on a state level. I mean, the, man, I mean, it's fascinating most of because these it's towns not even have like, like a, less than 10,000 people, dude. It, it's right, just yeah, I was like, going to say it's not like a metropolitan This is area, not New really. Jersey, you know, and, and you, it just it, the way that they're handling this in lockstep with some of those densely populated states just because it's like politically aligned. I mean, it's just so absurd, you know? Yeah, it's getting, I mean, I, I think maybe we'll end the conversation uh, yeah. on this topic. Um, but the thing that's concerning is the the rate of, of increase right now. I mean, like go, going back to the to the World Economic Forum and, and all of these, um, like, like this Build Back Better plan. I mean, the, the fear is that they don't take their foot off the accelerator. And I mean, they haven't for the, for the last seven, seven or eight months or however, however long it's been. I mean, everybody's kind of just hoping that they will, like if, if Joe Biden wins or, or even if Trump wins, maybe, maybe they'll lose some, some leverage that way, but I'm not a hundred percent convinced that they're actually going to slow this down. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like the most that they were going to slow it down was like over the summer, you know, where they kind of get gave, everyone just enough breathing room to leverage their last little bits, you know, take out their loans and and get themselves further into debts and really pound the final nails into the coffins of all these small businesses struggling to stay open, you know, give them, let let them come up for air just long enough to, to shove them back down. Right. Like, like the next step could be in six months, they say, okay, because small businesses are crushed because a bunch of you are unemployed, 
we're going to do universal basic income now. I don't know how they cannot do that, quite frankly, at this point. Well, I mean, they've prepped it enough. I yeah. mean, they're going, they're, they're going to have to. They're going to have to. But, 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 but yeah, so this is, this is my point though with this is like, we think that there's all these things that are like, oh, they're going to have to do this and they're going to have to do that at like some point in the future. Well, that might be happening much more quickly than we think it's happening. Yeah. Like that might have to happen in four months. And, and I mean, they might force, they might even do mandatory vaccines before that. I mean, like there's like a lot of steps that they can take here very quickly that I think a lot of people really aren't, um, aren't considering. I think even they, even the people who are administering this, you know, however you want to see that, um, I don't even think they expected people to acquiesce to this as willingly as they did. You know, I like the, the unprecedented level of just like, <laughs> yeah, of course we'll just, you know, they can just tell us to do anything now and in the name of this virus and it's all like, no matter what, I really feel well, like, I mean, not even, not people. even just related to that. Like, like how far away are we really from having like a climate tax or from them banning uh, like, well, I guess, I guess the way that they would like ban cars eventually would be through some sort of like uh, incremental tax or something. But like how far really are we away from that kind of stuff? Cause I mean, like last year it felt like maybe we were 10, 20 years away from that kind of stuff. Yeah. But this year, it feels like a lot of this stuff could be 18 months away. I feel like the stuff you just gave examples of, even like UBI, is less extreme significantly than what we're currently accepting as normal, what most people are accepting as normal. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. You know, I actually think, uh, not to get too deep into it, but I, I think it's always kind of interesting. I like to think about the idea of UBI, you know, especially like if you analyze it in the context of all of this uh, kind of government, you know, all of this spending that's already ongoing, which is one of the things that Andrew Yang talks a lot about, right? Like, it's not just that they're going to be adding all of this UBI, but it can be a replacement for all of these, like, you know, these entitlement programs that are currently existing. I think it would be, uh, in many ways, a much more kind of liberating and much more free market, if you will, uh, method of sort of providing that aid um, to people because it gives them the discretion over how that money is spent. And uh, it almost makes me feel like they won't do that. You know, I feel, I think like they want a system where people have to submit applications and, you know, like they, they want that kind of, that kind of control is, is what yeah, it all looks like to me. My take on it was that instead of just giving people free money, they would give you like corporate credits or something like they uh -huh. would give you like $300 credit to Apple or $300 credit to Google. Like, but I, I don't know. I, I haven't really looked in too much into the specifics. That's of, fascinating um, actually. That they, the UBI. I can see but that like, from an economic perspective. I mean, that's what you would expect would be, um, would benefit the, the corporations yeah. the most. You know? Yeah. And, and when they do that, it'll be billed as like, uh, you know, well, like a more moderate, you know, version, like the same way that the entitlement programs are. Well, we're not just giving people money, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe, maybe we'll end it on, on this point here, but I think generally, I think there's cause to be optimistic, like just, just in terms of how much of a spectacle this was, I think we're going to get people more and more people starting to realize that like, okay, 
and, and understanding that as this continues to radicalize, I think it's going to have to consolidate. And, and in doing so, there's going to be more people just pushed out of it. And then they're going to have to come up with new incentive structures um, and and new ways of living that are just not, that, that, that they're not doing right now. And, and I, I think that's a cause to be optimistic. Amen. Amen. Let's, um, let's believe that for sure. And uh, thank you all very much for attending this, uh, this latest little conversation of ours. We wish all of you nothing but the best and, um, you know, safest and most loving and social of times uh, as we descend into this next wave. God knows what. So stay cool, guys. <laughs>